Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Crystal Skillman, an award-winning playwright who's here to talk about her new play, Rain and Zoe Save the World, a climate change-themed production. Also joining me as my co-host is frequent guest Dr. Amy Brady. Amy has been on before to talk about the genre of climate fiction, or cli-fi. Amy and I interview Crystal and learn what inspired her to write a climate-themed play, why the arts are so important in climate communication, and how the theater has driven societal change in the past. It's an exciting and unusual episode for America Adapts. Okay, upcoming episodes, Dr. Elizabeth Matsui from the Federal Reserve Bank joins the pod and we'll discuss some recent research she's done on community development and climate resilience. We'll discover how Colorado is approaching climate adaptation. Also coming on is Dr. Michael Mendez from University of California at Irvine, where we'll discuss how climate change will drive migration from Mexico northward and also the impacts of climate change on the LGBTQ community and ways those groups are responding. Great stuff on the way. I'm sure many of you who listen to this podcast are aware that 90% of the plastics we use are never recycled. And what doesn't get recycled is ending up in our parks, our gardens, our air, and our oceans. Now, it's no surprise that when only half of Americans have access to one-choice-only curbside recycling, the U.S. has one of the lowest recycling rates in the industrialized world. And even for those who do have curbside collection, the local waste companies limit the kinds of plastics they'll collect, often citing poor markets for other plastics. The sad reality is that it simply comes down to economics, with recycling having to compete with landfill, which is cheaper and in many cases owned by the very same companies collecting your recycling. Well, a new startup called Nubin wants to change all that and believes we're about to embark on what it's calling a recycling revolution. Nubin's conviction is that crowdsourcing technology we use today for everything from ride sharing to food delivery can provide universal access to curbside collection with higher recovery and at a lower cost. Nubin is developing the first on-demand recycling service to accept any and all types of plastics for recycling free of charge. More plastic collected, of course, equals greater impact. I encourage you to check out Nubin's Start Engine campaign at startengine.com backslash Nubin. This company is working on reaching more homes and making the waste collection system more effective and honest. That's Nubin, N-E-W-B-I-N, at startengine.com. Okay, now let's learn how the theater is communicating climate change with my guests, Crystal Skillman and Dr. Amy Brady. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Today we have an exciting episode. Joining me is Crystal Skillman. Crystal is a playwright, book, and comic book author, and is here to talk about a new climate-themed play she's written, Rain and Zoe Save the World. Also joining me as co-host of this episode is frequent guest, Dr. Amy Brady. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hi, Doug. All right, Krista, we're going to get to you here in a sec. But Amy, just for those who don't remember who you are, can you just give a little bit of background of what you do and you maybe just uh, allude to the previous episodes you've done with me? Sure. Happy to, Doug. Thanks so much for having me back. I am the executive director of Orion Magazine and the co-editor of a forthcoming collection of climate-themed essays called The World As We Knew It. It's hitting bookshelves in June of this year. And uh, I also have been a frequent studier and occasional uh, contributor to the field of environmental storytelling, specifically fictional storytelling, which we often call climate fiction or cli-fi. And the few times that you have very generously invited me on, Doug, we've talked about what's happening in Cli-Fi and what sort of trends we might expect coming down the pike. All right. And I invited Amy on, Crystal, because she's going to ask the smarter questions. She's going to know your space much better than I do. I'm, I think I have some decent questions, but my listeners know this isn't a typical episode having a playwright on. That's not really, I'll usually have a scientist on or maybe just sort of a, a land use planner. So I, I like doing these episodes once in a while, but I bring on a ringer like Amy who really knows the space and can, can talk to it much better than I can. And so that's why we're kind of doing it this way. But I'm going to get us started. And Crystal, you know, just give us a bit of background about yourself and some of the work you've done. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm the author of a play called Open that ran in New York in uh, 2019 and has a beautiful film of it that has actually been streamed during the pandemic. It was nominated for an Offie at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I was just has to go to Italy, it looks like, with that piece live. So it's a really beautiful play. It's a magic show without magic, in which as a woman professes her love for another woman in this magic act, the magic might just become real as you watch it. I'm also the co-author of King Kirby, which is a podcast on Broadway Podcast Network. So hopefully that's something you might want to check out. And it's about Jack Kirby, the uh, co-creator of the Marvel Universe, and it asks why you don't know his name as well as you know Stan Lee's name. But if you're watching Eternals, you should. <laughs> and yes, I'm also the author of Rain and Zoe Save the World, which is currently running in London right now at German Street Theater through March 12th. I know Jack Kirby. I used to collect comics and that poor guy, you know, he has not got his just due. So great. You're just shining some light on, on his work. So <laughs> Amy, I, do you have any follow-up questions about her background? No, just that that's hugely impressive because every one of those genres has its own approach and requires different skill sets and talents. And the fact that you're doing so many, Crystal, is really incredible. Kudos to you. Oh, thank you. And before we get dig into some of the questions, when I was getting ready for this episode, Crystal, I, I actually remembered that I was briefly a theater major in college my freshman year. I can't believe I forgot this, but I was on the production side and I helped make costumes and do all the stage design in the background, you know, to the actually building it. And I actually was the lighting kind of director for one play where I had to flip all the lights when they were on the stage. So I can't believe I forgot that when you and I chatted last. So I know the theater a little bit. Yes, you do. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that was very exciting times. I didn't last very long though. Amy, I'm going to go to you after I'm going to start this off, but I think what I want to do is just let's talk about the main play, the climate play, Rain Zoe Saved the World. Crystal, you're not going to give away the ending, obviously, but can you tell us a bit about what you're doing with that in a basic plot line? And then we're going to dig into some of the details. Absolutely. This is a coming of age climate change story, climate crisis story. And we follow Rain and Zoe as they hop on a motorcycle fleeing their parents from the West Coast in America to the East Coast where they want to join a protest against an oil refinery. And Zoe believes her mother, who is a former activist, will be there. And it really explores what extremes you go for for the causes you believe in and also what it means to not only come of age but still keep your imagination and hope as you dig in even deeper as an activist and what it means to fail and succeed and how you can pick yourself up again so to speak and it's being staged in london at the moment but there's plans to bring it to new york is that right Yes, this is the first incarnation of it. And we learned a lot. And so um, we've been getting audiences response and critical response. And the next step will be with Drew and Dane Productions. I think we're really thinking coming back to America. I'm not sure if uh, probably it will be New York, but there might be a pit stop, but most likely it'll be New York. Crystal, first off, thank you for that amazing overview. The play, we had the great pleasure of reading the script ahead of time, and it was so much fun. And I hope I have the opportunity at some point to see it properly staged. You know, I've interviewed a lot of writers and artists who address the climate crisis in their work. And it seems like all of them have that, oh, no moment, (laughs) right? The point where they realize that climate change is in fact a crisis and they start to address it in their own work. Would you tell us a bit about your own oh no moment and why you decided to address this planetary sized problem in your playwriting? Yes, actually, Open the Play I mentioned before, Rain and Zoe Save the World, and another play called Pulp Verte, which is about a group of filmmakers struggling to shine a light on Syria and the, the crisis there, the ongoing crisis. All of those really became fuel for the fire as Trump was running for election. I had begun to work on Rain and Zoe Save the World a couple of years before as I was uh, dissatisfied with any administration and what was happening with climate change. And as I started to see the road we were on, especially with the obstacles Obama was facing in in America, I just began to say, how do we save this world? You know, if we can't politically decide on some very basic things that involve science, you know, and I think I consistently was reading articles about, you know, in the Bush era, you know, climate change scientists being threatened, and you know, all this information being suppressed early on as well. I was always moved by this. But it was when I started to follow my cousin in law, Ken Ward, and he began to openly like, you know, there's film, a documentary about him on 
Amazon, I believe, called The Reluctant Radical. And it follows his actions, you know, to disrupt and bring attention to the climate crisis, be it stopping a coal barge or, you know, shutting down a pl- outside facilities that might affect a plant, even protesting an ExxonMobil station dressed like Santa Claus, giving out coal. It's a really great documentary. So I hope people watch it. Before the documentary came out, you know, he was writing a lot on Facebook. He was speaking publicly. And I privately was a part of those conversations. And I, being that, you know, I would see him at family reunions and so forth. And I was very, very moved by the what it means to leave your job, what it means to dedicate yourself to this, what it means to look at your child and say, you know, I don't want them to grow up like this. This is going to be my entire focus that I'm going to give my energy to this. And I started to say, being inspired by the teenage activists that we have coming out, I said, you know, what's it like for them? And how are they treading new ground? But how can they also learn from the activists that are the, the older generation and their failures there? And how do those things work together? So it's a very interesting piece that Rain and Zoe, who are young teenagers, obviously, but they, there are two other characters in the play that play the mom and dad tracks in the play and also their, their conversations with themselves. And that has to do with a lot of them working that out and kind of realizing that their parents may have done more than they thought. And how can they also still find a way to find satisfaction and keep that drive when not every action you do is immediately successful? What does it mean to work through that? And I think that's just a really important subject to discuss with the younger generation. I still am going through it. (laughs) I would love an immediate effect (laughs) to everything I do, but this is such a long battle and each action counts. And there's so many of them. There's so many angles to cover. I think that embracing that through this adventure story, which is really how I wrote it, it's very genre oriented, would be really exciting to evoke a conversation between the younger and older generation in the audience. Crystal, your play reminded me in many ways of Lydia Millet's novel, The Children's Bible. I don't know if you've read it, but that book is about a bunch of young people, kids and teens who come together and get their collective families through the immediate effects of the climate crisis. And What's so interesting about that novel is that there's a lot of tension between the generations in the sense that the kids are motivated to make some change, but the adults uh, have grown complacent and kind of lazy almost. And so I suppose I'm wondering, in writing this play, did you think about what that conversation that you're hoping happens between the generations what that conversation actually contains or what it looks like? Are you worried that there will be tension there? I think that there, there is for sure. And I think, but I think there's also relief in having a conversation piece around it. So climate mamas, that group came and many of them said, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to bring my teenage daughter to this and have a conversation. I'm really excited. So for those already in the movement, I think that this is a, has a different uh, one conversation. I would say that there's, something built into the play that I hope speaks outside of just those of us that that are all in this fight together (laughs) and possibly could even reach some deniers in the sense that there's a spiritual component to the play where the idea of the soul is really related to nature and, and life and the journey. And I have been in some red states and I have seen people respond really positively to that. And that's really interesting to me. So I'm hoping this was not this recent viewing. I don't know. I don't think we have this audience saw that, but rather just before Trump got elected, there was a reading of it in Indiana and I did see that reaction. So what I'm hoping that is as the piece goes forward, that there, there'll be conversations between those that are already on the road, those that need to reignite their activism, those that are asking questions about it, those that are not sure it's really impactful to their lives or make or they care about as much, being that it may not happen in their lifetime. So I think all those are going to be separate conversations, most likely, depending on where they are on their climate crisis journey or activism Mm -hmm. with their children. I also think it's important because there's a lot of conversation about, you know, this is property and what should one do, you know, is something more extreme necessary to get attention. And I'm excited to have those scary conversations in the play because it is a, an extreme time and we've seen a lot of latency and we've seen a lot of spinning of wheels and we've seen a lot of politicians fall here and fail. So, you know, this is, this is just a naturally a part of the conversation. So I think that actually having a piece to work through what does that mean 
to do something more extreme and what are the outcomes of that and how does one live with that or what is what's the impact of that on families, I think is also really important. Crystal, I'm very interested in the writing process, and I'm sure it took you a, a bit of time. And you mentioned some of the presidential administrations and the lack of action. We're experiencing the impacts of climate change now, be it wildfire, hurricanes, you know, just these extreme events. And these have unfolded. You see it in the news. Did any of that influence your writing that you're seeing it just up? Wow, we're actually having to deal with climate change today. Uh, yes. I mean, it, you know, having started it a little bit before, uh, like 2015, really, every single story relates to a different, different aspect. And, and I, I think in particular, politically, very, very interested in owning what America does <laughs> and conglomerates and the 1%, because I think this is huge for, uh, we know it's huge, obviously, for affecting countries that are now the brunt of the decisions that we make. So, in that particular, as I was with the fires and, and flooding in different countries and these things, I think in particular, I was putting together in my mind how I relate to the story personally. And as an American, an American woman who, you know, we still can't get a female president. You know, there's a lot of, lot of issues in this country. I saw climate change really wrapped up, not just in an international conversation, but America and where's America at and what America can do. I had no idea we would be on this road where we democracy would be fraying to this point. And I think this is all going to be a part of the conversation. I think it's all wrapped together, if that makes sense. Crystal, you are the practitioner of lots of different art forms and genres. And so you know better than anyone that each way of storytelling, whether it's theater or comics or novels, they all require a different approach and they reach their readers uh, or audiences in different ways. I'm really curious. I don't have an opportunity as much as I'd like to talk to practitioners of theater. What do you think theater can tell audiences about the climate crisis that other genres can't, whether they're artistic or journalistic or otherwise? Yeah, I think what it is, is unpacking the word tell, because plays can't tell something, they can only have you experience it in real space in real time. So the difference is, even with great, uh, I, you know, with a novel, I can choose to put it down, I could put in a bookmark. Sure, you can leave a play, people might look at you. <laughs> Sometimes they cut out intermissions for that reason. Um, but, you know, it's you are caught in real space in real time with a conversation and characters on a story and a journey. And even if you aren't having the greatest ride with the play at some moment and you you're there, you know, and you're going to have to ruminate and think upon these things and live in this. So I think theater is, you know, really one of our oldest ways of having a really robust conversation because you can't immediately Okay, now, of course, everything can happen. And on Broadway, we know people are still on their phones, <laughs> sometimes not wearing their masks and all sorts of interesting things. So I'm sure that they're commenting on the play while it's happening. But for the most part, that's not happening. So because you can't, you're not reading an article and instantly commenting on it, instantly judging, instant, I mean, maybe in your head you are, of course you are. You're having to live with these debates and these ideas and your own relationship to them in real space and real time. And the un theater is the only live performance is, is really the only thing that does that. I mean, there are very impactful, of course, art installations as well. And I've been, I, I'm very inspired by them as well. And you, you sometimes are caught in space and time with them. But I think with a, with a story unfolding this way that you're in the dark with, you know, you are also aware that you're not alone. Because, you know, when I read a novel by myself, I mean, I could get together on Zoom, we could read it out loud, things like that. You know, for the most part, you're also watching your audience members just as much as you're watching the play. Hopefully not too much, but you're not alone. And I just think that's a big deal in this conversation because it can feel quite lonely sometimes, even after you've met with your group. And even though after you have actions, you go back and you have to wrestle with yourself. And for two hours, you get to um, be a part of something with other people. Amy, you and I chatted a little bit about this, and I think it's a, it, it follows up to what you just asked Crystal. And, and Crystal, and maybe you both can take a crack at this, but the, the notion of theater playing a role in political change or social change historically. Crystal, do you feel like there's been some moments in th theater history that you look to as an inspiration since you're tackling this issue of climate change, you know, going back decades labor movements or whatever, do you feel like th that the theater does have that tradition of making social change? 
Absolutely. It's interesting because it's a, a lot of UK playwrights come to mind. Erica Depenza has a great piece called Colored Water, and that was just at the public, and that deals with the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. It's pretty recent. We've got Ellen Lewis's play about set uh, with the, the site in Antarctica, and following several years, I think the play actually takes four hours and is a podcast that you can find at ART's website. They are located in Portland, Oregon. They are a theater. So there are massive pieces exploring this. And then I would say politically, some of those things that have that happened in terms of following the money would be even things like Enron, like Lucy Preble or David Hare stuff happens where, you know, you have to be a part of that to experience Colin Powell leaves the play. You have to be there to see them sing the numbers of the stock exchange and Erica's play. You have to be there to see them drinking the water, trying to avoid drinking the water that will kill them and amassing all these waters that they've, they've bought and that they've stored, and that, but yet they can't seem to escape the pollutants from this um, Black family living in Flint, Michigan. And one of them even has to work for the company and there's compromises there. So, you know, I think it's, you know, you're, when you gasp, someone's gasping next to you. When you respond, you're hearing someone else respond next to you. And it's very powerful, I think. So I think that not only has it had a history and an effect, I'm speaking more about modern plays, but absolutely throughout history. I mean, Shakespeare is, you know, I was just in Shakespeare's town. <laughs> so, you know, we're still, I, I love him dearly, but also, you know, one of the big things modern players speak about is like, ah, we've had a lot of Shakespeare. <laughs> Could I have a chance? That would be really cool. You know, he absolutely like was doing controversial pieces about power and wealth and prestige and corruption um, and using history to speak to several different classes of people, you know. So and in Greek theater, obviously, that's really what it was made for. And the no theater in Japan. So, you know, each art form has had a way to like ask questions in real space and real time that have us involved in that conversation and have opinions. You know, that's why I think so many people in the pandemic, one of the hardest things when theater went away and it didn't, you know, I am a part of being a hybrid, you know, I, I definitely streamed work. So it's not that it entirely went away, but what happened with missing the live performance was not only that kind of breath with the story living out in front of you. I mean, in a way it's a living dollhouse, right? It's this story is only for you to see. And it's like they're breathing and might make a mistake. And, you know, you've got these lights shifting in front of you. It's really dynamic. It's not flat. It's three-dimensional. So you have that wonderful experience. But what people were also missing was the conversation because that's how we would talk. We would, you know, go out after and like, what did you think? What did, what do you feel? And have conversations that were live and not online. Not that we can't have conversations online, but it's very easy to comment and judge quickly without thought. And I teach teenagers. So that's something I'm really interested in because I'm, I want to help the younger generation have critical thought and understand that even if they disagree with something or don't like something, it takes just as much time for that artist to make that as it does to make something that they, they feel works. Crystal, the, so many of those playwrights and theater styles that you mentioned involve beautiful, beautifully staged and written theater. And that's fantastic. On the other hand, though, there's also the history of theater, you know, both in the UK and in the United States of theater that is more, shall we say, pedantic, <laughs> propagandistic. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the workers' theaters of, you know, the 1920s and 30s what? that eventually got absorbed by the Federal Theater Project and, you know... And bread and puppet and, theater and... Um... and bread and puppet theater, exactly. And some of that was good, but a lot of it, <laughs> by our standards and by the standards of the day, the critics would not call good. And it's because they weren't aesthetically pleasing. They were pedantic in their calls to action. And so, you know, as somebody who writes about the climate crisis, you must think about that line between art and propaganda. And would you tell us a bit about where you think that synthesis works or if there's a line you just wouldn't cross? Well, I think that's a great conversation because I think, you know, one of the conversations I that surprised me was the audiences in the play. There are several fantasy sequences in which Zoe imagines because she hasn't seen her mom since she was very young and hopefully is on this journey to, to meet with her again. We actually discover what happened to her as an activist that was jailed for trying to shut down the same refinery years earlier. We actually discover what, what happened to her. But, you know, she speaks to the moon in a way to kind of 
have some kind of guidance or figure. Rain, whose father we discover more about in the piece, has a version of him that appears to him um, called Bike Dad, who's very cool and always has an answer, but he's totally annoying and he never wants to deal with him, which is a lot of the humor of the play comes from. The audiences really, really, really gravitate to these fantasy sequences, I think, because they relate to them and wrestling these larger questions that the characters are wrestling with themselves. It's very theatrical in that sense. And that's what makes it a dynamic play. Or I would say I can make this a comic book, but it would and it would be beautiful. But to live in real space in real time with those internal conversations that the characters are having with an an imaginary person that exists, but they're talking to them in their head. I mean, even as I'm saying that, that's super meta, right? That's like everything that theater is. So like, that's super fun and exciting. So audiences responded extremely well to that. I would say that in the press, I would say that they, they responded less favorably to that. And, you know, as I go forward in the play, I'm looking at that relationship and I'm thinking a lot about that because I'll have some chance to do some work on it. But I think what's important is that imagination and hope through this work is important. And I have to, I have to create an experience that would rival a nonfiction book or a blog or, you know, uh, a report. So those things can be a part of the, of the piece and there, and that accuracy is important, but I also want to get a give a sense of the thrill of adventure. So I use the road uh, trip kind of genre to give that, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance couldn't be a better example because there's many internal conversations <laughs> in that. Um, so, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're on a trip with someone else, you either talk to them or you talk in your head. And that the piece really has that, that kind of experience as they go through this landscape. So I think what I'm always looking for is how can someone in the audience not know something is coming, be surprised by how theater is being used. And what I really like, Doug, and listening to your podcast is how different fiction writers deal with with villains or non-villains in these climate change stories. And in general, with my work, I'm really interested in not having villains or challenging what that is. So the piece really focuses on Rain and Zoe's choices, how they're made in the moment, how does that have a, an effect? Is that positive or not? What does that mean for them personally and their coming of age, growing up story? And using this genre of the road trip on stage to unpack that. So I think, you know, in a sense, it's coming from that first, as opposed to, to propaganda. Propaganda is the opposite, or didactic work is the opposite. It, it comes from wanting to to give specific information to be consumed in a certain way. Which, which again, I, I'm a big fan of bread and puppet theater and and other pieces that do it in an imaginative way, but but have that clear message. I mean, I would say that this message does ask a lot of questions about those choices, and I don't think it gives you an answer, but it does have a very firm message that to try again and to face failure and understand what it means in the moment and try again means you will most likely be more successful the next time. You know, I think that we have too many unrealistic expectations of I'm going to do this one thing, you know, Oh no, that took so long that I'm, I'm exhausted now or, you know, and I, and I think it's a long game. So that that's really the message of the play. I think this is the point where my listeners are thinking, boy, Doug's in over his head here. So think, <laughs> Thank goodness. Amy joined the podcast. So this this is fantastic. But yeah, that, that's great. All right, I want to actually talk a little bit behind the scenes. And, and, and we can go back if you want to do some follow up related to that. But I'm just curious, putting on a, a play isn't necessarily cheap. And in fact, it can be quite expensive. And then you're having this theme of climate change. How did that all unfold? I mean, you know, you have a, a production company that you're working with, but was it really difficult to get them excited to put on a play about climate change and find the funding for the actors and everything? Yeah, well, I think, you know, to, to kind of piggyback off, off of what I was just saying, what excited them was how unique it was that this was such a personal story and such such a story about becoming an adult and also climate change so that those things go together. So they are climate change passion activists and Drew and Dane Productions. But as well, they were just like, oh, I haven't seen something like this before. And I would say that throughout, be it critics, audience, or sharing the play where it's won awards, I and mean, that's what people remark on. Like, I haven't, I haven't read something like this. This is a little wild. There are a lot of kind of outrageous stage directions in here, so to speak. <laughs> the, the, the moon talks, you know, like a wild dog appears. That used to be in there. I'm still wrestling with that, whether that goes back. A frog interacts with Rain and Zoe. <laughs> you know, there are very interesting moments with nature that are played by the actors with Rain and Zoe that are very challenging. 
So to come back to the production and those, you know, those choices, you know, we, this was kind of the first incarnation of looking at what that could be and what that could look like. And one of the things that was really, really interesting about this is a very small space in the heart of Soho, London, German Street Theater. They made the whole, they really um, redid the space so that it's, it's all grass. So that you really are outside with them all, the entire time on their trip. So that was something really exciting that the production took forward. And I think that was what the, we were asking every step of the way with Drew and Dane and, and the company and these choices was, you know, how can we keep showing and highlight this piece that's never been told this way? And how does it connect with audiences? So, but it actually wasn't difficult. That's the reason why they did the play is that they're passionate about climate change. They also are involved with my musical, Mary and Max, and they really like, and I work with composer Bobby Cronin, who scored a lot of this play, which really helps lift it up and is really exciting. And so that's our musical. And we have a very distinct style of embracing real life issues, but in very imaginative ways. So I think that they just love that that style and see it as being really unique and, and good storytelling to put forward with this particular collaboration and, and writers. Well, it sounds like that the collaborations went beautifully. So I, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. And I don't know, Crystal, I don't want you to get in trouble. So maybe don't answer it if you're not comfortable. But unlike other artists, like say a novelist who essentially writes the novel on her own and, you know, has an editor, but it's a very isolating process. You, know, you as a playwright work with all of these people to make your play happen. Did you ever feel like your views on the climate crisis either had to be tamped down or compromised to make your play a success? And that's a fantastic question, Amy. I love that. I think that's what I think. In, <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's important <laughs> because it's something that, you know, all playwrights and artists talk politically about how things come to be and behind the scenes and all that. But in the pandemic, you know, I think we also all realized how important this was because for younger artists and younger generation, you know, they, they're listening to, to what I say, right. They're listening to, you know, so being as honest as possible, it's really important that way. It's not so much of a mystery in this case. I actually think it's going to be the opposite with when I go forward with the piece. I think that some of the flow between the fantasy and reality gets a little jarring. And I think that some of the points I'm making in their perspectives could be clearer in terms of the climate crisis. So I actually think we'll probably be leaning more into that. No, I didn't. In this particular case, I think because the producers, that's their goal and mission. They just wanted to also make sure it was a family story and that, which is in the play, and that it was a personal one and that it was not just propaganda like we were talking about. And so since the play wasn't written that way, I think it was kind of a, an amazing thing for them. I'm trying to think about something. I know what you mean about like if it's too depressing or down. No, I, I don't think that I, I had that at all, but the play has a very particular way of, it's very funny as well. So it's got a lot of humor in it. It's got, even if there's debates going on, you know, they're trying to set up camp and, and Zoe is, uh, I think she's a master planner, but is not. <laughs> and Rain is very practical and, you know, it, it's, it has kind of been on his own for a bit. So they're kind of a terrific combo to watch. So it has that, that dynamic force of nature to it. But yeah, in this particular case, I, I wasn't really, there wasn't really something dangerous or, or someone was worried about it. If anything, I think it can go further with being a little bit more specific about some of the things I'm talking about the play. For example, I, I feel like in terms of, and I think partly it's going to be my treatment of it, you know, in terms of the um, oil spills affecting the nervous system and those kinds of things that seem to be something that's, there's not as much research on it, but it is true. And it just, it seems something that was a, a little bit newer for audiences and maybe feels a little glossed over. So I, that's something I really want to make clearer that it isn't, if there's an oil spill, th these kinds of cleanups are, are, you know, the air has been polluted, uh, the environment's been polluted and humans and animals have been affected. So I, that's something I want to make clear in the play. I, I hope it's there, but I think sometimes that, like I was saying, the division between reality and fantasy in this particular incarnation, we might have leaned a little bit more on the fantasy side. So it may not be as clear. Chris, I'm curious about the dynamic that, you know, you have a cast and crew and then you know, it takes a lot of people to put on a production, I, I assume with, with this production, you know, with the actors or was there chatter about climate change just even outside, you know, did, or were people just, okay, I got a job and I'm doing it. I'm getting hired to do this. Or was there sort of a, a sense of what they're trying to accomplish here related to climate change that kind of off when they're actually not doing the production, that climate change was something that they wanted to talk about. 
Yeah, I think that's why they said yes. And I, th I think that that definitely affected our audition process as we were really focused on people that were just as committed about the subject as their abilities. And in every single actor on that stage believes so passionately in the message of the play, but also to, to keep the conversation going and to keep finding um, strong actions to do and not give up, you know, and lay the, the groundwork for the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. So they, they, there was always robust conversation. A lot of times actors would bring up things, uh, suggestions with the script and things like that as well. It was really a collaborative, exciting, fruitful room. So yeah, it was it was really great to feel that way, to feel like really connected and wanting sustainability and wanting to create theater that was impactful through a riveting story on stage to help bring awareness, not just awareness, but also just how that activism of fighting climate change could be in one's life daily and how to manage burnout and how to continue forth. Everyone was really, really committed to that. Fantastic. Amy. Crystal, I know that a lot of artists who address the climate crisis in their work wrestle with balancing the tone because mm. on the one hand, we've seen the dystopian, pessimistic, depressing aspects of climate storytelling on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. There's the Pollyannish optimism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How do you go about that balance? And do you think that there's a magic sweet spot that you feel like audiences resonate with the most? I think that's a fantastic question. And as you can tell, this is, you know, this is set now. I, I definitely deal with future stories a little bit more with, with magic. Some things are coming out in podcasts and I write comics and things like that as well. There's always a, a magical element. But in this case, you know, I really wanted it to, to, to be now that these are real, you know, teenagers, this is a real story and all of these things we're talking about. So I wanted to steer away from the dystopian um, future stuff. I just, it's just never been right. My, my thing and me, me writing it, but I did want to explore the dangers and also the rewards of the Pollyanna-ness, if that makes sense. So a lot of Zoe's character, she starts out extremely gung-ho. She starts out with a very specific mission. She knows that Rain can build things, and she thinks that as a fellow activist, he'll build things that make a statement when they get to the protest, which she really believes her mom is going to be at, but she hasn't done all these things before. And then actually her, her father's been a bit protective and hasn't let her go to these protests alone. She doesn't want to go with him. We discover later he was just as intense an activist, but with the, with not being with his wife, I mean, the whole thing has, you know, been, been stressful. <laughs> There's a very humorous story in which she, she spins this like a comic book. She says, it's the story of the zombie queen. And she makes it all kind of embellished and, and bigger than it is. And, and this drama, not that it's, it's not that big. You know, the first act of the play really examines both Zoe and Rain's perspective in that sense. And with Zoe's, it is the more like, we're going to make it happen. It's going to happen. So when in act two, things go, sorry, the end of act one, things really take a turn. Um, when Rain makes a strong choice that he feels like is protective of Zoe, act two, they're really thrust in a way to see what those practicalities mean and what the effects of true cause and effect in this with their actions and what they've done mean. And so that Pollyanna-ness is suddenly challenged and it's suddenly challenged in a new way with the choices that she has to make. And I think what they really realize is that it is hard to save the world and have these great unrealistic expectations. But when you focus on what you can do and when the relationship of Rain and Zoe becomes more honest and strong, that's a great foundation to then absolutely do the things that seem more unrealistic and bigger, if that makes sense. So you're really watching two characters that really believe they're on board from the beginning. One is more pessimistic. One is more optimistic. And you actually see their perspective shift. In Act 2, Rain is much more optimistic because the controversial move he made at the end of Act 1 actually had an effect. And so he actually sees, oh, well, this is the road. This is what we can do. But this is conflictive with Zoe's peaceful nature. So, you know, this is something that what I was really trying to do is really kind of put on a skewer the hope and optimism. However, we do in the piece encounter hope and optimism. And the fantasy sequence in which they're working out these large choices in their head, you know, which I think is just a very young adult thing to do. I still do it myself, though, because I kind of like am a young adult. <laughs> but, you know, as as working out those ideas, there has to be some kind of hope because I don't know, like, 
these fantasy characters are not coming to the, they're coming to them to help them work out a problem, you know? So they and themselves kind of bolster the other characters. So there's a lot of different ways that, that hope and optimism are fueled throughout, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that that is not the answer, (laughs) but also burning out to the extent that you take yourself out of the game is maybe not the answer. You might need some self-care, but you know, just because something didn't work doesn't mean you have to give up forever. And it also explores that in the play. And at the end, you actually do see them grow up and you, you see what their perspectives on that are as they're older and how these, these actions they're practically taking in their lives actually do make a difference. Crystal, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, recently released their climate report, which is a really big deal in my circles. It's, I mean, just it's just sort of saying the lay of the land, what the threat is out there. Adaptation was a much bigger part of this report. But I'm not in denial. The general public really just still doesn't care. The IPCC really has trouble kind of getting that message out. And I'm just curious, you are obviously thinking about climate change in ways that most people aren't. And I mean, you're not a climate scientist, but you care about the issue. Did that information, since it was so recent, is that something that came on your radar? I'm just more curious on how it's kind of getting out there and resonating even with people who care about this issue. Yes, I would say it's been disheartening. And to travel internationally, there's different responses everywhere. But I would say from the response to climate change in terms of audience, uh, or audience, I love it, I just called the populace of America audience, (laughs) Our civilians, there's a real checking out right now of a, there's either, there's either impassioned, you know, activism and going at it again or in a younger generation having a larger voice, or there is a huge part of the population checking out about, geez, anything that they think can help or, you know, even that, that don't even believe that the president that you elect matters, right? Like, I mean, there's just a real disconnect in this country about that. So it's very frustrating to not see it, that people still don't understand how the climate crisis is literally such an important part of the time that they're here on earth, because everything that they're getting and that they enjoy is from earth. You know, my next play actually deals with the, it's a commission and it deals with the, the Nazi scientists that, that sent us to the moon basically. But it also goes through, you know, exploring Von Braun's optimism and how he actually wanted to get to Mars, not the moon, and how that was all part of the plan and a lot of other things about the peace and about how they were accepted in Huntsville, Alabama at the time and what that means and how that reflects uh, changing America and the effect it had on us. You know, I think that it's really hard to look at America and American politics right now because it, it, there's a lot of darkness that we're fighting. I mean, it, it almost feels like, like a novel in itself. Amy, I'm, this question is for you and Crystal. Please speak up after if you have your own opinions. But a lot of books, cli-fi, climate fiction, come across. You know, Amy sees these things. Do you feel that any particular one would lend itself to a, a, a stage production? <laughs> well, oh, maybe cool. it's because it's because Crystal's play is just so immediate in my brain. But the novel I mentioned earlier, Lydia Millet's A Children's Bible, would be in some ways such a great companion piece to Crystal's play if it were adapted for the stage. It shares a lot of the same themes. Emotionally, it is wide ranging. It's a very funny book in places and in other places infuriating And just from a practical standpoint, much of it takes place in the same spot. (laughs) So if one wanted to build a fairly elaborate set, you would only have to build one. But um, very practical, Amy. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a it's a fault and a benefit, I guess. But yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I also just think there's something to be said for more intergenerational narratives that emphasize how young people and middle-aged and older people can and should work together and importantly, listen to each other. So I'm ready for a night of theater with uh, Crystal's work and a stage adaptation of Millet's book. I love that. How do we make that happen? <laughs> I love it. Also, I think when, you know, um, going forward, I've wanted to spend more time, you know, as, as things progress on an educational guide, you know, and with references. So that would be a great piece to, to reference that people read as they um, take this in. Crystal, do you think there's a demand for like a, a stage musical f- based on the podcast America Daps? Do you think there's there's like an appetite uh, for that or anything? Uh, like, uh, convert it over to that? Is there kind of maybe? 
Um, absolutely. Right. Well, I'll talk to Bobby Cronin, my collaborator. Right. We will get right back to you on that. But there also is, I will shout out, there is, uh, there's a few climate change musicals in the works. Um, one is called Treason. And that author has really been doing some fantastic work. So I think you can find them on Instagram. I think it's just, it's T-R-E-E-S-O-N. And, uh, and a few, and I'm sure a few others. I think what's really exciting, Amy, to see about your work and what you've been chatting about and, and with Doug is, and your coverage is that the cli-fi you're, you're talking about, we haven't really in theater circles talked about it this way. I think everyone has come at it either, like you said, about a particular mission and agenda, which is cool too, or an instigative action, maybe it's site-specific even, or coming at it from story and how it goes in story. And a lot of them tend to be apocalyptic um, stories. The idea of weaving in how you guys are talking on this podcast about how pop culture is now reflecting back meaty conversations about the subject is really exciting. So, Crystal, if people want to learn more about this, obviously, you know, they're living in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, but they still want to learn about it, even though they might not see it in person. What are some ways that, that, that they could go uh, research it? And I'll include links on my the webpage I create for this podcast, but just, you know, general promotion. I think you said you have a teaser trailer. Yep. And we have a, um, a website that you can go to, which is brainandzoesavetheworld.com. And we'll post a link to that. You know, we'll be keeping people posted on the next steps with the show. You can follow right now. You can follow German Street Theater. We'll post that link as well. And the Rain and Zoe Save the World Insta account or uh, is on Insta on Twitter. It's Rain and Zoe on Twitter. So just follow us for the continued conversation to see where the where the story goes. Okay, Crystal. And final question that I ask all my guests, if you could recommend anyone to come on this podcast, who would it be? <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I, I would suggest Ken Ward. Okay. You make introductions. <laughs> That's a good fit. Sure. All yeah, right. Absolutely. All right. Fantastic. All right. This has been fantastic. That is unusual content that I normally do for the podcast. And that's why I love doing these. And I'm so happy that Amy was able to come on. And Amy, I want you to say just a little, as we're kind of wrapping this up, but you have a newsletter. If they want to learn more about you, just please put a plug in in some of the work that you're doing. Yes. Thank you, Doug. If anyone's interested in my newsletter or my personal work, you can go to my website, amybradywrites.com. But even more exciting than that, as I mentioned, I'm the executive director of Orion Magazine. Uh, This is Orion's 40th anniversary. Orion is a print environmental magazine that's published some of the finest environmental writers and artists ever. And to celebrate our 40th anniversary, we are having a virtual event on June 14th that is free to register for, but you do need to be registered to get the link. And it will be featuring writerly and environmental luminaries such as Margaret Atwood, Bill McKibben, Vanessa and Nakate, Jeff Vandermeer. If you're interested in any of the books I mentioned, or if you're familiar with climate action, then people you know will be at this event. So please register. You can go to orionmagazine.org to learn more. And gosh, I would love to have you all there. Fantastic. And I'll have some links in my show notes. And America Daps is one of the co-sponsors on that. Very proud to be doing that with Amy. That's very exciting. Okay. This again, fantastic conversation. Crystal, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy and Amy and I hope that we can secure tickets at some point if it happened, we happen to be in the city where where it's happening, but thank you so much for coming on. You bet. We'll get you front front row seats. Oh, you hear that, Amy? We're going to hold her to that. Okay. Heck yeah. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Crystal Skillman for coming on the podcast. I had flashbacks of my brief theater days. Oh, what might have been. And thanks to Dr. Amy Brady for coming on to co-host with me. Thanks, Amy. That conversation was 100 times more enlightening because you were there to help out with the questions. I don't talk about the arts that often, but I really should. Communicating climate change needs to take many forms, and the theater touches people in ways and this is a profound understatement, that a podcast never will. It's a great way to inspire people and to bring new thinking into getting people to take action. I hope Amy and I get to see a production of the show. Thanks again to Crystal for coming on. Okay, here's something new. I'm always hearing from my listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or in the last year, and that means they've missed out on a bountiful archive if you haven't poked around yet at previous episodes. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. In episode 94 of America Adapts, 
Resilient New York, I visited New York City. This is the episode on urban forestry and climate adaptation. I traveled across the city, visiting parks and interviewing experts on how forests add to the overall resilience of New York City. We also talked about the Cool Neighborhoods Program and public health, extreme heat in urban areas, and social and ecological resilience. And well, much, much more. Definitely check it out. And in episode 87, Tribes, Indigenous People, and the False Urgency of Climate Adaptation, I interviewed Dr. Kyle White. Kyle is an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Community Sustainability and a faculty affiliate of the American Indian and Indigenous Studies and Environmental Science programs at Michigan State University. Kyle is also an enrolled member of the Citizen Patatuhuama Nation. Kyle and I discuss how Indigenous people define urgency in the face of climate change, manage retreat for tribal communities, the sometimes controversial relationship between tribes and climate scientists, climate change's role in ongoing colonization of indigenous people, effective tribal engagement, and much more in a fascinating and sometimes raw conversation. Definitely go poke around in the archive. There are many more. If you are interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work that you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I frequently go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me, identify experts that represent the work that you are doing. I've done these with groups like NRDC, University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, University of Florida, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. And most projects have communications written into them, so consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used a podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting together a white paper or even a webinar. So please reach out. Let's have a conversation. And I think of all those foundations that are funding various adaptation projects and they require communication. Well, consider sponsoring a podcast to communicate what you're doing there. Wink, wink, foundations. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they're a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own professional experiences working in adaptation. You can contact me via the website, americadaps.org. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Say hi. I've been hearing from a lot of people from all over the place and allows me to know what you guys are doing, how the podcast helps you. So please take the time to send me an email. Sometimes it leads to professional relationships that are really useful, I think, for both sides. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time. I'm sure many of you who listen to this podcast are aware that 90% of the plastics we use are never recycled. And what doesn't get recycled is ending up in our parks, our gardens, our air, and our oceans. Now, it's no surprise that when only half of Americans have access to one-choice-only curbside recycling, the U.S. has one of the lowest recycling rates in the industrialized world. And even for those who do have curbside collection, the local waste companies limit the kinds of plastics they'll collect, often citing poor markets for other plastics. The sad reality is that it simply comes down to economics, with recycling having to compete with landfill, which is cheaper and in many cases owned by the very same companies collecting your recycling. Well, a new startup called Nubin wants to change all that and believes we're about to embark on what it's calling a recycling revolution. Nubin's conviction is that crowdsourcing technology we use today for everything from ride-sharing to food delivery can provide universal access to curbside collection with higher recovery and at a lower cost. Nubin is developing the first on-demand recycling service to accept any and all types of plastics for recycling free of charge. More plastic collected, of course, equals greater impact. I encourage you to check out Nubin's Start Engine campaign at startengine.com backslash Nubin. This company is working on reaching more homes and making the waste collection system more effective and honest. That's Nubin, N-E-W-B-I-N, at startengine.com. Okay, now let's learn how the theater is communicating climate change with my guests, Crystal Skillman and Dr. Amy Brady.